This was the hardest part of my healing, to be honest. The toughest idea for my weight-obsessed brain to accept. But it got to the point where I was just slightly more interested in healing my relationship with food than losing weight. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we have Sammy Harrison on the podcast, and Sammy has been a longtime friend of mine, and it's been inspiring to watch her grow over the years. When we talk about the concept of turning pain into purpose, this is exactly what Sammy has done with her life. So she's been able to do this now with her career as it relates to binge eating, and then also with infidelity and single parenting. And there are going to be some really tough questions in this interview, and we are honored that Sammy has agreed to be so open with our audience. So to begin, Sammy, could you tell our listeners a little more about who you are and also why you feel so called to do the work that you do? First, I'm so excited to be here. You know, I'm a long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I feel like that joke is like, yeah, anyway, like Fraser Crane days. Anyway, I just want to say, first of all, I'm such a fan of this community that you two are building. And I just get chills thinking about it. You know, it's like women helping women being there for each other. And it's just oh, so good. So thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for having me on the show and allowing me to contribute to the conversation. So I'm Sammy. I'm a certified life coach and former secret binge eater. So I help women recover from binge eating behaviors by helping them unlearn diet culture and relearn how to trust their bodies and themselves all through the lens of compassion and curiosity. And, you know, talking about turning pain into purpose, the reason I'm on a mission to help women heal their relationships with food and body is because I suffered with it throughout almost my whole life. I started binge eating when I was 10 years old and the whole time, you know, binge eating felt compulsive. It felt impossible to stop. And throughout my life, I tried all the things. I tried all the diets, the brain hacks. I read all the books. I listened to all the podcasts. I did all the journaling and I still couldn't control my binge eating. And for me, really the hardest part of healing my binge eating wasn't learning the nutritional science of what my body needed, but it was really healing the emotional aspect of it. Diet culture became such a part of my identity in stripping it away. It was just hard and vulnerable. And it felt like I was shifting my whole way of thinking and it felt awkward. And sometimes it just felt wrong a lot of the time. So it can be hard. And that's why I do what I do. You know, I want women to know that healing is possible and they don't have to do it alone. Uh, and we've talked about binge eating on a few episodes in the past. You've probably heard them, but today we wanted to get more clarity on this topic from the get-go. So could you start by explaining to our listeners what secret binge eating is and how it differs from emotional eating or overeating? Yeah, I have. And great question. You know, there are some nuances, so it's helpful to understand the differences and I'll go over them kind of high level. So Emotional eating is the practice of consuming food, you know, usually comfort or junk foods, even though I hate that terminology because of what it is, but that's what people understand. So it's 
eating food in response to feelings instead of hunger. So your body isn't necessarily hungry for it, but emotionally you desire it. So that could be negative feelings, like you're feeling sad or bored or anxious, and you don't want to feel that way. So food offers a pleasurable distraction. Or you could emotionally eat when you're feeling happy as well. Like say you're at a birthday party and you want to eat the cake, even though your body isn't telling you that she's hungry, but emotionally you just want to enjoy the cake to be a part of the experience that you're partaking in. And there's nothing wrong with emotional eating. It tends to get a bad rap, but it's a very kind of natural and morally neutral thing to do. And everyone does it to some degree. My advice is to not make it need a bunch of stuff about you and just move on with your day. It's when we kind of obsess over it and try to control it is when we tend to get into trouble. So binge eating is eating past the point of fullness, but in a shortened time frame, usually less than two hours. You know, it's hard to quantify. Everybody's bodies are different, of course, but the general idea is in less than two hours, you're eating what you'd normally consume in a half to a full day of eating or more. Binging is really more of an episode. It usually is accompanied by intense, high arousal feelings of panic or fear. And it's like this compulsion of, I need to get this food in my mouth right now, which often results in really fast kind of panicked eating. Overeating, on the other hand, can be done you know, over the span of a day or multiple days. It's usually a bit slower. It's more drawn out of a process. It's not as charged as binge eating. You know, That panic isn't there. Now, secret binge eating, which is what I specialize in, is when we binge eat when no one is around, often hiding all of the evidence. So we kind of wait or hold off on our binging episode until we're alone, until our housemates are gone or our family leaves. And then we just, well, we go on a binge. Often we'll hide the wrappers, hand wash dirty dishes and put them back so no one sees them. You know, we'll go through a drive-through and then take out the trash so no one even sees it in the garbage we'll replenish foods that aren't ours. You know, I did that in college. I would always buy quote unquote healthy food because I didn't trust myself around it. So, but my roommate didn't. And so I remember just compulsively eating her food when she wasn't around. And then I would go to the store and replenish it and buy new stuff. And I just remember her saying to me like, why aren't I ever making a dent in these Cheez-Its? Like I've had them forever (laughs) because I just kept replenishing them and I'd eat them and then I'd buy more. And you know, what makes secret binging especially painful besides just our bodies being in pain from the large amount of food we're eating is the shame around it, which is why we hide it, right? It's the fear of being found out, the fear of judgment, the fear of thinking that there's just something wrong with us and we don't want anyone to know, you know? And as Brene, she doesn't even need a last name, Brene Brown (laughs) says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. So that's what I'm set out to do in this world is, you know, douse women with empathy, help them realize that they're not alone. They're not broken. They're not lazy or lack self-control and help them get out of this shame binge restrict cycle so they can live a life free of food and weight obsession. Sammy, as you go through the descriptions of each of those, I can feel my hands getting sweaty, thinking about Mm. the panic and just that like forced, I need to eat this, I need to eat this, I need to eat this. This is my last binge. This is the last time I promise. And then the cleaning up of all the wrappers, you know, going to the McDonald's drive-thru and then throwing it away before I even got home. Like that was 
my story. And I know that so many women listening, they're like, oh my goodness, that is part of my story as well. And we finally have someone on the podcast who can talk about it so openly. And this history with binge eating, I didn't even know that secret binge eating was a thing, Sammy, until I started talking with you about that. And it was something that you and I shared when we were roommates in our early 30s, although neither of us knew that the other person was suffering from it because we were both doing everything in secret. And I know that we're not alone, where others can be so confused. I'm like, why would people do that? Why would they try to hide these wrappers? Like, why would they need to force this food into their mouth past the point of even being full? It doesn't even taste good anymore. Like, why are you doing that? So can you explain what are some of the main reasons that people begin binge eating and then also continue binge eating? Yes, I would love to. And before I get to that, I have to say, so I lived with Abby and Colin for about six weeks and it was during, you know, the hardest time of my life. And I'm sure we'll get into that later, but mm -hmm. I stayed with them up until I gave birth to my son, Lewis, who is now six. And actually Colin and Abby drove me to the hospital. Colin curated the perfect driving playlist. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I stayed in, uh, you know, her spare bedroom upstairs and downstairs. I kept my appropriate foods, you know, so that I could put them in Abby and Colin's pantry and fridge. But my shameful secret, although now I don't find it shameful at all, really, is that I kept my inappropriate foods upstairs in the room I was staying in. I was like hiding them. And I remember just being like nervous that you would like need something from the closet and open up and find it. It was just, it was so shameful in the moment. And looking back, I just wish I could give myself a hug, you know, because all it did was add so much suffering to my already present suffering. And it was just, you know, unnecessary. So back to the reasons why we binge. There are two main reasons why we binge eat. The most common prominent reason is because of restriction, you know, and it's important to note that there are different types of restriction as well. So towards the end of my binge eating journey, I was binging every day. Basically, I was eating way more food than my body required every day, but I was still restricting. And let me explain because restriction comes in many forms. So there's your typical physical restriction. This is where you're eating less, you know, you're consuming less than your body requires for fuel. This could be from a calorie intake perspective or an entire food group perspective. You know, eventually if you restrict enough, your body will demand that you eat, you know, from a physiological standpoint. So my teacher said, it's like holding your pee. You can work really, really hard to hold it. And you can last a really long time, depending on how many kids you've had. <laughs> but eventually your body will take over and demand it happen and you will pee. And it just goes to show that you can't control your body 100% of the time. She needs what she needs. And for those nutritional and body science nerds out there, the book Intuitive Eating will give you all the information you need to explain why her body reacts the way she does when she's not properly nourished. The second type of restriction is mental restriction. So this is where diet culture really messes with our minds. You know, it does with physical restriction too, of course, but the fact that we could give our bodies enough nutrients and our brain still thinks it's experiencing restriction is really interesting. It sounds like it wouldn't be as powerful as our body's reaction, but trust me, it is. This is where, you know, food rules come into play. So anytime we have diet culture food rules, like, you know, I can't eat white bread or I can't eat past 6 p.m. or I can't be hungry. I just ate two hours ago or, you know, labeling foods as good and bad. Anytime we do that, we're putting mental restriction on our minds and our brains will rebel against it. And what often happens is that gives food way too much power over us. So much that in my story, I thought I was really pathetic. I thought 
how could food give me so much joy compared to other things in life that there was something wrong with me? Like maybe I need a better hobby or something different because food is giving me way too much pleasure, but it was only because of that restriction that I was putting on it. As soon as I started giving myself, you know, unconditional permission to eat, which is one of the intuitive eating principles, that power of food had over me started to diminish. You know, I still had my fear foods that held out a little bit longer, or I practiced giving myself permission to eat, the allure of the food just lessened. Now to the point that food has become kind of no big deal for me, which is weird because I'm actually enjoying food a lot more, meaning I'm mindfully eating it. I'm delighting in it versus like eating really fast and feeling guilty the whole time. So I'm enjoying it more, but that power that food had over me is gone. And it's all because I removed that mental restriction. The third type of restriction is called future perceived restriction. So this is when we anticipate a new diet or restriction in the future. So we have this uncontrollable desire to binge in the present for fear that we'll never get these foods again. And because we know that starvation is coming, it's often referred to as the last supper effect. And finally, pleasure restriction. So this happens when we eat the junk food, quote unquote, but we feel so guilty that we don't actually let ourselves enjoy it while we're eating it. You know, as humans, we're wired for pleasure. I like to think of it as like a pleasure tank that each of us have. We need pleasure to keep us going, to keep us doing the hard stuff in life that you know gives our lives meaning and purpose. And I think in our hustle culture, we often feel like we can ignore pleasure, that it's kind of a luxury, but then we get completely burnt out because our pleasure tank needs to be filled so we can keep doing the work. So when we feel guilty, when we eat, instead of enjoying it, we aren't replenishing our pleasure tank. And eventually, because we desire that pleasure so much, we'll binge to get it. The other reason why we binge, if not from restriction, is because food is our main coping strategy. This is taking it a step further than emotional eating. When we use food as a coping strategy, we do that because we don't currently have the skills to process negative emotions without the use of food. You know, processing emotions is difficult. And most of us weren't taught how to do it. So we either avoid, resist, or react from negative emotions. Instead of just opening up to the pain and discomfort that's there, we run from it. You know, some of us use drugs, sex, Netflix, social media, working, exercising, food, you know, the list goes on. And none of these are morally better than others, but they all run from the pain instead of processing it. And for people that have been binge eating for a long time, We use food to buffer from negative emotions so much that there's often a lot of pain there that's unresolved. You know, all emotions are energy in motion. And when they show up in our bodies, they do so for a reason. Sometimes those reasons are profound and life altering what they have to teach us. But most of the time, our emotions just want to be acknowledged and processed. So in my work, we spend time on resolving the pain that's there And we work to build the skill of processing negative emotions so they don't keep building up. And right now with our Patreon book club, we're reading Alice of the Heart by Brene Brown, who you mentioned earlier. And she talks about the same things. People use different types of destructive behaviors to buffer our lives instead of working through what they need to work through. I know that a lot of women are relating to your story already And I wanted to see if you'd feel comfortable going into your experience with secret binge eating and how you finally found healing. Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned, I started binge eating when I was a little girl around 10 years old. 
for me, it started out as a coping mechanism because I didn't know how to process big feelings and I didn't know how to talk about it. And I wasn't really shown how to do it. So I found something that worked for me and it was food. You know, after lots of coping with food, my body started getting bigger. And that's when I started getting comments, you know, from family, from classmates, all of it. And of course, diet culture and fat phobia is everywhere. And it's crazy how much our subconscious kind of picks up on things without even being fully aware of what's happening. But I learned that, you know, a thinner body would make me more likable and help me fit in. So I started my first diet by age 11, restricting food, both physical restriction and mental restriction. And, you know, thus starting my 20 year painful journey of that restrict binge shame cycle. And all the while over those 20 years, what I was doing was really severing the relationship I had with myself, with my body and my inner knowing as Glennon Doyle calls it. You know, all I wanted to do was whatever society said I should do to fit in. So dieting for me was a really painful process of kind of beating myself down until I hardly recognized myself. You know, I was trying so hard to conform, to be disciplined, to be smaller, to be what I thought everyone wanted me to be that I just lost myself. My binge eating recovery process finally began when I was in my thirties, when I opened up to my best friend about it. You know, she is my best friend. She's known me since seventh grade and she had no idea that I suffered with binge eating or food and body obsession, no clue. And the minute I opened up to her, you know, the heaviness of it all just started to wane. It just felt a little bit lighter. Like I started to see that maybe binging isn't as bad and awful as I make it mean. Maybe it was just a girl doing the best she could under these conditions. So from there, I read Intuitive Eating you know, a book that changed my life along with at the same time, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. So it was a magic time (laughs) of discovery. And I also found a coach who specialized in food freedom and I did the work. And for me, the work was really unlearning. It's unlearning diet culture. It's unlearning fat phobia. It's unlearning food rules and outside sources telling me what I should be doing and how I should be doing it. And from there, I could relearn how to listen to and honor my body and trust her again. I learned lots of tools that helped me and it was a long process and I'm still unlearning. I'll still catch myself in the web of diet culture sometimes, but I've also learned how to be compassionate and curious with myself so I can keep honoring my relationship with myself so I don't get stuck for too long. And a quick break from our podcast partner, which is the Homer Learning app. At the Greenhouse, you guys, we use this app all the time. Everything from just a quick break so that we can make dinner, all the way to a road trip companion to make those road trips a little bit easier. Both Micah and Lucy use these. They're great for any ages, two through eight, and they're personalized based on age and interest. So Lucy is on her own trajectory and Micah is on his own. This app has been shown to increase early reading scores by up to 74%. And there are thousands of activities across all types of subjects, such as reading, math, social and emotional learning, thinking skills, creativity, and more. We were actually introduced to this app because many of the teachers in this community said, this is the learning app that doesn't feel like learning. It feels like fun and a game for the kids to play. And as a Herself listener, you get a 30-day free trial. So head to our show notes, click on the link, and sign up for your free trial. It's also super cheap after that. So we've been using this app for over a year and have loved it. Again, head to our show notes, click on the Homer Learning app, and start your free trial today. 
And you being able to open up to your best friend after all of that time, like having those words out in the open, it takes the power away from it. Like you've mentioned that so many different times, and that's a huge part of this binge eating recovery. I mean, when Colin and I met, even through dating, even through our engagement, even through our early years of marriage, he had no idea that I was a secret binge eater. I hadn't even told him. And it wasn't until I found a coach, Sammy, just like what you're doing right now, which we're going to get into pretty soon, that conversation, she goes, what is your biggest secret? Like the secret that you have that you want no one else to know. And remember it took like a while for me to finally be like, this is my secret. And once the words were out in the open, it just, it lost its power. And that's when the recovery really started. So we'll be getting into coaching more and just how the power of our words can really help with this recovery. But I want to focus in on a part that you had mentioned there, which is when you had started binge eating as a little girl, and then you started getting the comments because you were getting bigger. And as part of my story, I had gained a lot of weight my freshman year, you guys, like almost 50 pounds my freshman year when I'd started binge eating and even more the following year. And I so desperately, just like so many women who are in that binge restrict binge cycle, I wanted to lose weight, but I almost feel like that pressure of the weight loss, that was what pushed me to restrict. And then what consequently had me binge again. And I know one thing, Sammy, that you mentioned over and over is that binge eating recovery it doesn't automatically mean weight loss, which that's a hard thing for us to hear. And in fact, though, that's not the goal at all. So can a person heal from binge eating while also wanting to lose weight? And what is this goal when you talk to your clients? Oh, Abby, thanks for opening up. And yes, it's such a great question. And this was the hardest part of my healing, to be honest. The toughest idea for my weight-obsessed brain to accept but it got to the point where I was just slightly more interested in healing my relationship with food than losing weight. And honestly, that's all it takes is just a slight shift in priorities. So the goal of binge eating recovery is a healed relationship with food. The goal is not weight loss. And I'm sorry to say it can't be weight loss because the only way recovery is possible is when we stop participating in diet culture, when we stop looking to our weight to be the measure of success. So we can start tuning into our body instead of looking at the scale to tell us how we feel. Now, it doesn't mean you have to give up your weight loss goal if you want to recover from binge eating, but it does mean it needs to take second place to the healing. So in my experience and what I recommend to my clients is that we take weight loss off the table during recovery. We throw away the scale, which can sound scary to some people, but the whole goal of that is to start using our internal wisdom to be our guide instead of outside sources. And only then can true long lasting healing occur. So a secondary goal of binge eating recovery, which is usually kind of a natural result of the first goal, which is, you know, a healed relationship with food is to get your body back to its set point or natural weight. So set point theory is the idea that our bodies each have a predetermined weight for optimal function where we will thrive. And we were simply born with it. You know, it's like our shoe size and they're all different. We're all different. So what might be an optimal weight for my body might not be an optimal weight for yours. The idea is that our bodies know our natural weight range and they will work hard to keep us within that range. It usually varies, you know, five to 15 pounds. And actually the set point range is known to get higher the more we diet. So as our bodies try to regulate that constant restriction, you know, if you look at the research, we know that 95% of diets fail in the long term. And we know that people who diet more tend to weigh more in the long term and usually have more health problems. I love the set point theory because it makes so 
much sense in my story. You know, I couldn't understand why I would eat 1200 calories a day for a month and not lose weight. And it was because my body was fighting to keep me at my set point. And the sooner we can make peace with our body at our natural weight, the more at peace and the less obsessed with food we become. Ooh, I think that you two are so brave, both of you, for sharing your stories, because I know that that can be hard and, and maybe bring up some stuff that you guys have worked through. And another thing we wanted to talk to you about is infidelity. And we haven't talked about this topic in a while. And like we said, we were, we're going to ask you some tough questions. You agreed to answer mm -hmm. them. So you knew that they were coming. We like to say that, though, so people know that people don't just come on here and then we're, you know, asking them something they're uncomfortable with. But you have gone through infidelity. And I would love to know, what did you find to be the hardest part of that? Yes, I did come on willingly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, infidelity is so hard. And I feel like every infidelity story is so unique, but also strangely similar. You know, but my story is especially rare because my ex-husband was unfaithful while I was pregnant. And, you know, for the added drama, the other woman was my coworker at the time. So going through something as emotionally painful as infidelity, when your hormones are raging from pregnancy was really, really hard. But, you know, I think it's similar to other people's stories in that I had suspicions, you know, and I tried to talk myself down. I tried to reason out of them, which I think is our way of protecting ourselves, you know, of avoiding that pain. So instead of judging myself for that, I offer myself so much compassion because I know I was just trying to cope and take care of myself. There's so much about it that's hard, but for me, the hardest part of infidelity was the loss. You know, it felt like an overwhelming, unbearable loss, and the losses just kept compounding. It was grieving process after grieving process after grieving process. For me, it was grieving the man that I loved, you know, seeing him every day, talking with him, doing life with him. And then harder than that was grieving the way I used to see him. I couldn't see him as that man I fell in love with anymore because that man wouldn't do what he did. And that was really hard because I really loved seeing him that way. You know, I grieved for his family, my connection with them. I grieved our friend groups that wouldn't be the same. I grieved every past memory he and I shared, you know, every present desire I had unfulfilled, I grieved that. And every future dream I grieved, you know, and the future dreams were the hardest ones because those were the ones that were so rosy, you know, like, especially in our early stage of life, I was only a few months pregnant. So I never got to create the nursery with him. I never got to parent with him. I didn't get to experience childbirth with him by my side. And it all felt so lonely and just so full of loss. I felt robbed. And what's weird with infidelity, I know all stories are different, but for mine, it happened so suddenly. It was like, one day he just admitted to it and then poof, he was just out of my life. And like I mentioned, I wasn't equipped <laughs> at the time to handle all of that pain. I didn't know how to process those big, painful emotions. So food was actually, you know, looking back, a really helpful coping strategy for me. And it was the best I could do at the time. You know, and aside from the loss, I think the betrayal was obviously painful, as you'd imagine. But I think Honestly, I was surrounded by the best people in the entire world, Abby being one of them. When this happened, I didn't make it mean a bunch of bad stuff about me. You know, I saw it as something that he was going through. You know, obviously I'm not a perfect person and of course was not a perfect wife, whatever that means. But 
this type of betrayal felt so unwarranted, like that I knew it wasn't about me. And that really helped me heal, actually. And I'm grateful for that perspective. One, even as someone, Colin and I, being part of both you and your ex-husband's circle, like knowing you both, like it just, it felt so unwarranted, like not to choose sides, like we're not choosing sides, just looking at the entire situation. I know women and the people who are listening right now who have been through this type of betrayal, that loss, Sammy, you said it so well. Like it's not just the loss of a relationship, it's the loss of future relationships, dreams, other relationships around you. So that just really put it into perspective for the people who are listening right now. A quick break from our sponsor, BetterHelp. In this episode, we're talking about a lot of hard things. Sammy's talking to us about infidelity, about divorce, about binge eating. A lot of the time, people need professional help with these issues. So we are such fans of therapists. Abby and I both go to therapy ourselves. And when we do, we use BetterHelp. It is so easy to connect with a therapist that specializes in whatever you need help with. So you get paired up, you have access to them. There's virtual online therapy, which is what I do. It just works so well with my life. So if you want to join the over 2 million people that are using BetterHelp services, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. Oh, and now... You are dating such an amazing man. And I got the opportunity, Sammy, to meet Aaron just a few weeks ago. And I instantly fell in love with him for you. And I adore how he treats you. Like he treats you how you have always, you were always supposed to be treated. And how he looks at Lewis and how he treats Lewis, your son. Like just, I am so, so happy for you. But Sammy, I also know that it was a really long road for you to get there. So how did infidelity impact your future romantic relationships? Aaron is amazing. He is the perfect man. He's not someone I would ever be like, oh, this is the man I'm going to marry. But, you know, meeting him, you instantly know, like, he's good. You know, but before him, I was mostly single for, you know, around five years. I did online dating and I had a couple of relationships that lasted a few months, but dating after divorce is hard and dating after infidelity is like an added hard what happened after my marriage ended is, well, for me, I was exhausted, right? I was getting up with a newborn every couple of hours. I was completely drained and frankly, didn't have the energy or desire. And I remember feeling like I have so much responsibility on my shoulders right now. The last thing I need is a relationship because my previous relationships just felt like a lot of work, which, you know, before I could kind of rationalize relationships are hard work. You need to put a lot of effort in all of that, which I think is true, but I think I was letting myself do more of the heavy lifting. But once Lewis was a bit older and became more independent, I was able to have more mental space and capacity to start a relationship. And with Aaron, I remember thinking, this doesn't feel like work. And I think it's because, you know, he's so solid in who he is. He doesn't need me to take care of him or build him up. I don't feel like he needs anything for me. I think he just wants me to be me and share in this life with him alongside him, which might not sound super glamorous, but this is the truest love I've ever experienced with a romantic partner. And it just feels solid. 
which clearly by the amount of times I said salad, that's something (laughs) in a marriage. And, you know, after infidelity, my priorities shifted when I was looking for a partner. I used to get, you know, a little swept away with wit and charm and looks, you know, kind of those superficial things that kind of distracted me from the real stuff. But trusting Aaron is easy for me. And I think it's because he's so open. He's so vulnerable, so genuine. And I never feel like he's being anything other than himself, you know, put him in any situation and he's fully himself, which looking back, wasn't always the case in my past relationships. And that consistently really means a lot to me now. Well, yeah, it's like when we pick what we're going to major in, or if we get into a relationship young, it's like we don't even know who we are yet. And we're committing to other people or committing to our lifetime career. And it's actually kind of wild. Where now when I have friends that are dating and we're in our mid 30s now, things seem to go a lot better. (laughs) It's like less dramatic almost. We've all grown up. Yeah. So I love that. I think solid is the perfect descriptor of that. So Lewis is six years old now and you have been parenting while living apart from your ex-husband ever since he was born. We just had Michelle Dempsey on our podcast not long ago and she talked about this, but how was it co-parenting with someone that had hurt you so much and how were you able to trust him that he could parent well after that? Yeah, you know, co-parenting is a trip. (laughs) It's taught me a very beautiful lesson of loosening the grip of control and realizing kind of how little control I actually have in the first place. It's a weird situation, but I've never really seen my ex-parent because we didn't have kids, you know, before the divorce. So I don't really know how he parents really, which is weird. You know, we used to babysit kids together when, and he was always great with kids. You know, we talk about parenting, how we handle things, what we value, and we're aligned for the most part, but we've never actually gotten to witness each other parent, which is a unique situation. Lewis loves his dad. And from what I can tell, my ex is a good dad, which is all really that he knows about me as well. So to some, that might sound really scary. And it was for me in the beginning too, but loosening the grip has helped me find power in the fact that all I can do is what I can do. I remember meeting with a lawyer when we were first filing for divorce and asking him like what I can do to have more time with Lewis. And he was like, nothing. (laughs) It's not in your control. And I was like, oh man. And and that was devastating. But honestly, it was kind of like really freeing for me to hear that. And it it made me feel like I didn't have to be anxious all the time and try to control everything to keep it just the way I like it. There's some things I just have to let go of. So, you know, instead of being anxious about what Lewis is experiencing every minute of every day, instead I focus on how I want to show up for him. You know, I don't think we need hyper-evolved superhuman parents to turn out all right in this world. And I think there's some wisdom that comes from witnessing our parents' failings. You know, obviously I want to show up as my best self for Lewis and I know his dad wants the same. So all I can do is what I can do, which is show Lewis unconditional love and acceptance, you know, create a safe space for him, try my best to teach him the skills that have served me well and make sure he feels seen and heard. You know, as far as co-parenting with someone who has hurt me, I don't really carry that hurt around anymore. And I actually, I do think we work better together as co-parents than we would have as full-time parents. I do struggle, obviously, you know, like when Lewis is having a hard time, you know, one night he was sobbing. And when I asked what was wrong, he said he wanted to have one home with mommy and daddy together. And it felt like a bullet to my chest. 
but all I could do was what I could do. So I just cried with him and I said, you know, yes, it's so sad. And I felt it with him. You know, we felt it together and that was all I could do. Mm, That would be so hard. And that mantra, all I can do is what I can do. Sammy, you've been saying that since the very beginning. I know we have a lot of single mothers in our audience and others who have friends who are single parents. And watching you be able to let go when Lewis was, well, first of all, when you were pregnant, and then when Lewis was a baby and you were recovering from a really traumatic birth, and then when Lewis was a toddler and all the challenges that toddlers have, and then now that he's in kindergarten and you guys are moving quite a bit, there's been a lot of changes for you both. So with all of these and more, what do you find to be the hardest part about single parenting? Yeah, there are a couple of things, you know, especially in the beginning, I felt like all of the pressure was on me. Like, yes, I had amazing people in my life who helped me and I'm so grateful. And I don't know what I would have done without them seriously, but that mental kind of unseen pressure of it all being on me, you know, my decision, my strategy, my planning, all of it was on me and no one else could really make those decisions or execute all of those tasks. It was a lot of that unseen pressure of all the things I have to do and the fear of dropping the ball felt so strong. You know, as Luz gets older and as I'm working on loosening that grip of control, that fear has lessened, thankfully. You know, the other part that was really hard for me was experiencing all of Lewis's life, you know, his infancy, his toddlerhood, and now little kid stage all alone. There was no one to delight in it with me. I felt like every day I would find out something really cool about this amazing little boy and I didn't have someone to share it with. I think that's why I posted a lot on social media because it felt like my way of coping, my way of saying, hey, you know, this stuff, though it seems small, is really significant in my life and it's really beautiful. And I want to share it because I know it's not going to last forever. So having Aaron now around to witness kind of the joy and hilarity that is Louis J is so fun. You know, he gets to see him and all his small quirks and all his funny questions and all of his imagination. I'm just so glad I get to share that with someone. That totally makes sense to me because that's something that for Drew and I, that keeps us going like those small moments and we'll kind of catch each other's eyes or we'll say, can you even handle how cute Cole is right now? Like it is that piece of sharing that I could see being missed. We also wanted to ask you, because we know that there are people that are going through this and they're going to be new at it and they need support. And some of our listeners, they're the ones that are supporting and they want to know how best can people support a person that is a single parent. Yeah. You recently had Michelle Dempsey on the podcast, like you mentioned, and she said something I really agreed with. And it was more along the lines of what not to do with a single parent. And that's kind of, you know, bash the ex. It's not helpful. For me, it was especially hard in the beginning when I was just so tender and raw and I still loved him deeply. And I had a lot of well-meaning people start bashing him. And, you know, I can understand the urge because we're angry and we want justice and it feels like, you know, they're sticking up for me, but it just adds more hurt to the situation. I wanted to be mean. And, you know, especially with infidelity, you have like this anger that's there. And so I had moments where I was like, I want to be mean and get stuff off my chest. So I would initiate. So I would go to a couple of my closest people and I would bring it up and they would kind of meet me where I was, you know, never really exceeding it, but just kind of like being there for me. And to add to that, I think, you know, I also want to bring up this idea of pity versus compassion in Brene's book, Atlas of the Heart. (laughs) She calls pity the near enemy of compassion 
And my advice is to check in with yourself before, you know, reaching out to someone that you engage with who's a single parent, that you're coming from a place of compassion versus pity. So compassion is really about recognizing the shared suffering. So while maybe you can't relate to being a single parent, you can relate to feelings of loneliness, you know, of pressure, of exhaustion. So tune into those feelings and then you'll steer clear of pity for sure. You know, there were moments when I felt pitied and it was really painful and made me feel worse because I just felt so separated and disconnected from that person. And those near enemies, they're not the opposite of, but it can almost feel like you're being compassionate when in reality it's that pity. So that answer and that book, it just, it brought out so many of those pieces of how our words, if we can change them slightly, our behaviors and our actions, it can really help that emotion start to shine. So Sammy, thank you so much for being so open and honest about these really, really hard topics today. And I mean it when I say that watching you use your experience to help so many women get through some of their toughest challenges, it has been absolutely inspiring. And especially as it relates to binge eating recovery, I just have loved watching you grow. So please let our listeners know more about your program and who it's for, what it entails, all those details. Gosh, guys, thank you so much for having me. So if you're someone who struggles with secret binge eating and what I said today resonated with you, I invite you to go to my website and schedule a free consultation call with me. It's 30 minutes. It's a no pressure call. You know, sales makes me sweaty <laughs> and we'll just talk and ask questions and, you know, see if there's a fit. So you can go to sammybcoaching.com to schedule that. Otherwise you can follow me on Instagram at sammybcoaching or subscribe to my podcast called End Secret Binging. Sales makes me sweaty too. But I think <laughs> that for those of us that are really trying to help women, it's like, we want to make sure it's a good fit. So I think taking one of those calls, it's like you're just trying to see if it's a good fit and if it would be helpful for you to get some coaching. So I love that. If you guys love this episode, this would be a great one that maybe you send it, text it to a friend, and that will just help us get the word out a little bit more. So thanks again, Sammy. Thank you, guys. Thank you.